This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week we wade into the complexities surrounding Julian Assange, asylum, WikiLeaks, Ecuador, and free speech. We'll discuss the controversial view of the Committee to Protect Journalists. And we'll also continue our exploration of the challenges faced by indigenous groups in Colombia, suffering during a civil war that has stretched on for almost five decades. More details and reactions to Colombia's peace process top our news. Jenna Longoria has that story and more in our weekly review of news from around Latin America. The Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the country's primary rebel group known as the FARC, this week proposed a ceasefire in Colombia's civil war. The war in Colombia has gone on for more than 48 years and is one of the oldest armed conflicts in the world. The leader of the FARC, Rodrigo Londoño Echevarri, who goes by the nickname Timoshenko, released a rare video in Cuba this week to discuss the peace process. Somos optimistas. We are always optimistic. The brave story of the social forces will capture the future. We are convinced the national reality is the great majority believe it is necessary to find peace with social justice. Colombia's government and the FARC announced their official negotiators this week. Last week, the Colombian government released information that a formal peace process would begin later this month in Oslo, Norway. Although secret preliminary talks between the government and the rebels have been underway for months. We'll have more on the conflict in Colombia and a commentary on the peace process later in this program. Hitmen in Medellin, Colombia gunned down Griseldo Blanco, who was once one of the most powerful drug lords in the country. Blanco was an ally of the notorious Pablo Escobar and was called the Godmother. She is credited with pioneering new smuggling routes to the U.S. and with a style of execution where assassins use motorbikes to stalk their prey. Her killers used the same method to end her life. She served two decades in U.S. prisons on drug charges before she was deported back to Colombia in 2004. Eduardo Ariano Felix is set to appear in a San Diego court today, Friday, to decide his bond on charges of racketeering, money laundering, and drug distribution. He was extradited to the U.S. last week. Ariano Felix is one of four brothers who are accused of running what was Tijuana's most powerful drug cartel. Two of Ariano Felix's brothers are serving time on drug charges in U.S. prisons. Mexico's armed forces concentrated on breaking what was known as the Ariano Felix cartel, during the administration of Mexico's President Vicente Fox. Since that time, the Sinaloa cartel has eclipsed Tijuana drug organizations as the most powerful in the Pacific region of the country. A magnitude 7.6 earthquake rattled Costa Rica and neighboring countries Wednesday, leaving dozens injured and one dead. A brief tsunami alert followed, but was soon canceled. President Laura Chinchilla said there were no reports of major damage and called for calm. For Latin Pulse, I'm Jenna Longoria. Thanks, Jenna. The story of WikiLeaks stretches back more than two years, when the website published hundreds of thousands of U.S. diplomatic cables and classified defense documents. But the founder of WikiLeaks, Julian Assange, soon found himself embroiled in a different controversy, wanted for questioning and facing accusations of sexual assault in Sweden. Assange eventually gave himself up to authorities in London in 2010, but he's fought extradition to Sweden ever since. 
arguing that if he's given up to Swedish authorities, they'll turn him over to the United States to face possible charges. Last month, the saga took a new turn as Assange moved into the Ecuadorian embassy in London and was granted asylum. Recently, one of the leading members of the Committee to Protect Journalists in New York issued his own opinion about Ecuador and its protection of Assange. We talked to Carlos Laria of CPJ, the Committee to Protect Journalists, earlier this week via Skype. Let, let me be clear about this. We, we are not against the, uh, the decision of uh, Ecuador to grant uh, uh, asylum to Assange. That's a sovereign decision by the government of Ecuador, and you know it's uh, in its right to do uh, what, what, what they decide is best for, for them. And uh, I mean, the, the purpose of our um, my uh, blog for CPJ was to uh, you know, establish kind of a parallel between the you know the, the government's decision to concede uh, uh, Assange asylum and the treatment of uh, Ecuadorian journalists by the uh, Correa administration. Um, in the past few years, and uh, I mean increasingly since uh, President Correa took office in uh, 2007. A freedom of expression has become under siege in Ecuador. Uh, today, President Correa uh, is uh, his record in terms of freedom is among the worst in the Americas in terms of government repression. And uh, you know, providing asylum to uh, the founder of WikiLeaks won't change. Uh, unfortunately, the uh, conditions very repressive conditions that Ecuadorian journalists face when they want to report critically on uh, on the government or um, on government corruption. I mean, the uh, uh, situation, um, the, the cases uh, of violations of freedom have been widely documented, uh, not only by CPJ, but, but by, you know, international human rights groups, local human rights groups like you know, Human Rights Watch, the Ecuadorian press group Fundamedios, and and the special rapporteur of the Inter-American Commission of the OAS, they have all concluded that uh, the Correa administration uh, um, has shown intolerance towards press criticism and has engaged in a, in a campaign to silence critics in the media. For our and listeners there, who haven't tracked this, can you give us one example, maybe a recent example, that right. illustrates this anti-media policy of the Correa administration, and that right. would be President Rafael Correa of Ecuador. Exactly, President Rafael Correa. Well, there, there, there are many examples, Rick, but let, let me uh, sh- take, take you to one of the most recent examples. I mean, the shutdown of uh, more than 10 radio stations, uh, local radio stations. We conducted a thorough review of the closures and found that the majority of these uh, broadcasters had been critical of the government. And uh, regulators at uh, Conatel did not follow due process in many instances. I mean, uh, many of these stations also uh, were um, uh, owed uh, payments, rental payments, uh, payments for equipment. Uh, But uh, according to uh, the uh, telecommunications law, the broadcast law, uh, the the um, the the court 
courts must issue a final ruling before the closures may proceed. In, in all of these cases, um, these um, uh, appeals were still pending when the radios were closed. So this, this was a clear uh, case, clear where uh, the government uh, did not follow due process. And, uh, you know, it, it, it called our attention that many of these stations were critical of the government. But we, we did a report in 2011 that showed that the, uh, many of the practices of the Korea administration, perhaps uh, one, one of the most notorious things um, uh, that, uh, you know, have uh, been, uh, you know, caught the attention of the international public opinion and, and the media is the use of uh, defamation lawsuits in civil and, civil and criminal courts as a mean of, means of, uh, you know, attacking and intimidating critics. And uh, If I may, if we could just um, go back a little bit to the more recent case of Assange, um, who is more or less a, um, a free speech icon. Um, mm -hmm. Are you saying that, that the asylum offer for him now is just a case of political convenience to support... Um, Korea's political views? It, it looks like, yeah, it looks like a political move. It looks like a political move when his, uh, you know, image internationally has been suffered, suffering, uh, you know, took a, a hit after, you know, the, his treatment of journalists and the press, uh, you know, in, in Ecuador. Seems like an attempt to, you know, to clean his, uh, his image abroad. Uh, but again, the international community is not fooled, uh, Rick. And and uh, I was in Geneva during the uh, UN uh, Universal Periodic Review in May, and there were 17 UN member states that drafted numerous recommendations to uh, bolster the state of press freedom in Ecuador. So, um, you know, there are clear problems there, and uh, you know. These are not the only; they are only ones. I mean, there's also legislation that has been passed, changes to electoral law, including uh, broadly worded prohibitions that may hamper press coverage uh, of the political campaign ahead of the 2013 February February 2013 presidential vote, when Correa will seek re-election. You know, one provision, for example, states that the media must abstain from promoting directly or indirectly the campaigns of political candidates during the 90 days leading up to the election. According to local journalists, that, you know, could mean that even a profile of a candidate could be um, subject to a sanction. So, in your opinion, <laughs> does, does this mean that, that um, going back to what you mentioned about the U.N., that the Assange case is being used as a smokescreen by Ecuador to cover up some of these other free speech issues. Uh, I, I, yeah, yeah, I, I clearly believe this. This is this is uh, this is a smokescreen. This is an attempt to clean his international image uh, to look as a press freedom champion when, in fact, uh, you know, freedom of expression in Ecuador is clearly under siege. And uh, at the time when President Correa, who has also been criticized by the OS rapporteur, is leading a group of countries that uh, are looking forward 
not only to neutralize the work of the uh, OAS rapporteur, but to dismantle the whole inter-American uh, 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 human rights system, um, which is a model uh, in the world for the protection and promotion of human rights. And, and, this, and this, will, this will be a shame. If, if I may, um, I wonder if you have any opinion at all about um, uh, the WikiLeaks releases and what they did for free speech and what they said um, uh, about uh, U.S. policy in Latin America. Do you feel that they had any positive impact? Well, yeah, they did. I think, I think that, that that was, uh, in, in, in many cases, um, uh, there were, uh, you know, there, there was an impact about uh, U.S. foreign policy in Latin America and around the world and, uh, you know, uh, information that was, uh, you know, being kept uh, secret was, um, you know, was uh, out there and, and, and this is important. And uh, I think that uh, that uh, the... We have said already that uh, it would be a mistake for uh, for the U.S. Uh, to prote- prosecute uh, Assange under the espionage law. It would be uh, very damaging to freedom of expression in the United States and around the world. And I think that any attempt to uh, uh, bring uh, uh, Assange, uh, to extradite Assange to, to the United States also would be a big mistake, and we oppose that completely. My... Uh, uh, point here was to just uh, make make clear that that uh, you know the the decision to grant asylum uh, to uh, Assange in Ecuador really um, is is really ironic at a time when when the uh, administration of President Correa is engaged in a systematic campaign to control the flow of information and stifle dissent. Well, thank you, Carlos Laria of the Committee to Protect Journalists, CPJ, joining us today on Latin Pulse via Skype. Thank you so much, Rick, for for your interest in CPJ's work, and uh, it was a pleasure to be with you. I want to finish school. And then go to college. To be able to graduate. And have the future my parents couldn't have. Because I know that going to college is the best thing I can do for my future. The words of a parent help to build the future of a child. The Hispanic Scholarship Fund has the information to help your kids go to college. Visit yourwordstoday.org or call 1-877-HSF-8711. Sponsored by the Hispanic Scholarship Fund and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Imena Sanchez of the Washington Office on Latin America, or WOLA, joins us again this week to discuss the fallout and frustrations in indigenous communities in Colombia trapped by that country's long civil war. This week, she tells us about the problems of the NASA people of southwestern Colombia near the Ecuadorian border. Well, in recent uh, weeks, the NASA indigenous people who live in northern Cauca, which is uh, in, located in the Pacific part of Colombia, um, have basically been embroiled in an indigenous uprising against all of the armed groups that operate in their territories. And so when we talk about armed groups that may be operating in their territories, we're, we're talking about the Colombian military. We're talking about uh, guerrilla groups that are organized against the government politically. We're talking about uh, narco-traffickers, drug groups that are also aligned sometimes with 
the guerrillas, sometimes aligned against the guerrillas. Very complex armed conflict. Yes, this is one of the most complex internal armed conflicts in the world because uh, you have a factor in it that goes beyond the political discussion and beyond the regular issues of uh, conflicts around the world, which is that you have a drug war that fuels the conflict. And multiple actors that form part of that conflict uh, get their financing either directly or indirectly due to the drug war. So in Colombia, you actually have efforts at times where the groups are actually all working together because they're trying to get the drugs out of the country. <laughs> so it is very complex. So the drug war makes strange political bedfellows. Yes, unfortunately it does at times. Back to the story of the NASA people. They're known as a pacifist Group. So when you say that they're in the middle of a rebellion or, mm -hmm. or, or a fight, um, th this seems not to be the way that they have phil philosophically operated in the past. Since 2002, when President Alvaro Uribe Vélez was president of Colombia and he took a very hardline approach against civilians and in particular against indigenous people, one of his most famous statements made was um, in regarding the NASA people where he said, you know, basically that um, they had to drag out whoever they had to and get their heads if they needed to, um, to have them obey what the government wanted. Um, the NASA people have been engaged in an effort to try to get the different armed groups, both legal and Ill illegal, to respect the rights of civilians, the rights of indigenous people, the rights of their autonomy in their territories in Northern Cauca. They have made several proposals to the different armed groups saying that they want to sit down and build a regional accord that basically respects their right to live in peace and to not be part of the internal armed conflict. So in other words, they want respect for international humanitarian law. They don't want the illegal armed groups to, for example, put um, any of their installations in the civilian areas like the schools, the community centers, or what have you, because what has happened with this is that indigenous people get killed in the crossfire. They don't want militarization of their territories because there's been a high incidence of recruitment of minors by force, and there's been sexual attacks against their women. And frankly, what they want is basically to live in peace autonomously in their territories. They also have seen that uh, with the conflict has come the facilitation of entry of multinationals into their territory to exploit natural resources. Uh, Northern Cauca is very well known for gold um, and other natural resources. And these types of large-scale development projects are not the projects that they, as indigenous people, feel is the way for them to move forward in terms of economic development. Now, several weeks ago on this program, we reported on the fact that the NASA had physically removed members of, of the Colombian military from their area. Can you talk to us about that event, and, and was that the beginning of this uprising? Yes, it was. Basically, approximately six weeks ago or more, um, the uh, NASA people decided that, okay, we've been telling all of the armed groups we don't want them in our territories. Um, we've been telling the FARC not to act in our territories. We've been telling the paramilitaries, and we've been telling the military. And uh, none of the groups were listening to them. When I was in their territories in m late March, for example, five people were massacred, 
five indigenous people were massacred. Um, no one knew which of the groups, but given that um, there were massacres, killings, and, and other sorts of violations being committed by all of the groups, it could have been any of them. If you understand um, it from their point of view, they've made all these peace proposals. They've um, basically uh, have tried to negotiate autonomy, and it hasn't happened. And so they see that their people are being killed, and they've decided we're going to remove the problem. So they did. They dragged soldiers out of their territory. They disarmed them? Um, yes, they grabbed them by full force and disarmed them and, and tried to drag them out of their territories. Um, they also held a trial for three of members of their tribe that were working with the FARC guerrillas to make a point of the fact that uh, they, as a tribe, do not believe in supporting armed groups. And... Uh, Interestingly, rather than this being seen by uh, Colombia as a society, as here are people who are fighting for peace, are fighting for autonomy, are fighting for an end to conflict, they were seen as these aggressors. They were presented as these anti-Colombia, anti-military folks. Um, this led to negotiations with the government. At first, uh, President Juan Manuel Santos refused to meet with them, but eventually he did meet with them. The president, uh, I think, rightly apologized for the abuses committed by the part of the armed forces. However, the president has refused to budge on the notion that the military can't be present in their territories. What they want is the military to be outside of their immediate territory because they feel that that will allow them to at least not have in not have combat operations in their area and minimize the civilian impact of that. You mentioned the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. For those listeners who don't track Colombia, we need to make an understanding that that's just one, but the leading revolutionary guerrilla group that's that's operating, and they have ties, obviously, to some of the um, the, the drug gangs that operate in Colombia. Um, given that we saw a collapse of a peace process a dozen years ago in Colombia, what's the potential for this? Well, I think that President Juan Manuel Santos is very different than President Alvaro Uribe, President Pastano. He is far more sophisticated, um, and he is much more willing to negotiate things and much more willing to uh, figure out a way forward that includes more Colombians than just the political elite and the economic interests. This has led to criticism against him by Uribe himself and by Uribistas and right-wingers that are, you know, hardline against him. Um, but um, I think that he's made some good steps. He, you know, promoted a land rights law that is problematic and has some issues, but land issues are basically one of the central tenets of conflict in Colombia, so the fact that he made that issue is important. Um, he decided that he was going to disarm words against um, human rights defenders and social movements, which is positive because those movements are completely necessary for the construction of democracy in the country. And so he um, has made gestures like the legal framework for peace to try to figure out a way that there would be a reduction or some kind of sentencing for groups that turn themselves in um, with the idea that, you know, you have to make some concessions for peace. So I think that this is a government that can be negotiated with. On the other hand, the FARC and the ELN guerrillas, this is the second guerrilla group in the country, have stated publicly in multiple letters that they're willing to talk. And they're willing to talk, um, and they didn't want to talk under um, Alvaro Uribe Vélez. 
And so I think that the atmosphere is different. I think Colombians are extremely tired of war. This has been a war that's gone on since 1964. Uh, Colombia has the highest number of internally displaced people in the world, uh, with over 5 million of them, a disproportionate number amount, unfortunately, Afro-Colombian indigenous. Um, you know, Colombia has had serious issues with landmines, and uh, which are mostly uh, put by guerrilla groups. And I think that everyone's tired of the war, and this may be a good time to actually start sitting and discussing. And no group would benefit more than the indigenous groups because they have been the ones that uh, not only have promoted this but had also been the hardest hit in recent years. Briefly, in your mind, is there hope? Yes, I think there is a lot of hope, and I very much hope that the U.S. government um, supports this and doesn't do anything to sabotage it, and that uh, Norway, Cuba, and Venezuela are supported in this effort to get the actors moving forward. Imana Sanchez of the Washington Office on Latin America, WOLA, thank you for joining us on Latin Pulse today. Thank you. And now, Latin American Perspectives with Peter Hakem of the Inter-American Dialogue. Colombian President Juan Manuel Santos has taken a big gamble in launching negotiations to end the country's half-century of guerrilla warfare. Peace talks always carry a high risk of failure, and Colombia has a history of negotiations gone awry. President Santos himself acknowledges the difficult road ahead. Whatever happens, however, he deserves praise for his pursuit of a negotiated settlement. The time has come for a sustained effort to achieve peace in Colombia, and there are reasons to be hopeful of success, although probably not quickly. Most Colombians today support negotiations, even though many remain skeptical about their chances. For the past decade, Colombians overwhelmingly backed their government's relentless offensive against the guerrillas. It succeeded in cutting the size and firepower of the rebel forces and substantially improved public security throughout the country. But Colombians have come to realize that it will now require a prolonged war and much bloodshed to force the remaining guerrilla fighters to surrender. Colombians like the security they've achieved, but they now want peace. They do not want to pay the continuing cost of an outright victory. There are indications as well that suggest the guerrillas themselves recognize they are fighting a lost cause. They know they have their backs against the wall militarily, and whatever political support they once commanded has long since dried up, domestically and internationally. Another reason for hope is the extent of external support for the peace process. Four countries, representing a wide ideological spectrum, will be involved in the negotiations. Two, Norway and Cuba will host the talks, while Chile and Venezuela will be observers. The U.S. and countries worldwide have strongly endorsed the Colombian initiative and President Santos has been careful in preparing the way. Still, a lot could go wrong. The biggest unanswered question is what the guerrillas have in mind. Despite the precariousness of their position, 
they still may see negotiations as an opportunity somehow to refurbish their image, not to reach agreement. Another obstacle is that peace talks are opposed by some Colombians, most importantly and most virulently by former President Alvaro Uribe. He asserts that even to talk is too much of a concession to the guerrillas and will weaken security and debilitate democracy in Colombia. Uribe remains an enormously popular figure and could bring many Colombians to his viewpoint if the talk should falter or the guerrillas step up their violence. And, of course, even with the best will on both sides and wide public support, peace negotiations can fall off the rails. Still, it is hard to disagree with most Colombians that, after a successful war, it is now time to give peace its turn. If you'd like to react to our Latin American Perspectives feature, or any portion of this program, you may write us. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Or you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or on Facebook. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. Thank you for joining us on Latin Pulse this week. For our entire team, associate producer Jenna Longoria, announcer Victor Kilo, and writers Colin Campbell and Jordan Derry, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros, gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bathtime Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2012, Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>